0: Live from the Hills of Judea is the land of visual fellowship with rabbis Arya Bramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel. Good to see everybody.
1: Shalom, shalom. This is one of those times I wish we were all here together. I think that this fellowship is meant to be in person, flesh and blood, here in Judea. And, uh, you know, at the end of every Passover, we say, Lashana Habab Yerushalayim, next year in Jerusalem. And I want to start this fellowship by... By begging of Hashem, the Shana B'Abi this next year, may we all be together in Jerusalem for Passover at the Third Temple. May it be soon. May it be soon. Please, Hashem. Okay, good to see all of you. Um, there's so much going on. You know, I titled this fellowship, The Redemption Mindset. Because every day that goes by, you know, I'm becoming increasingly convinced that redemption... Is not going to be something that happens from without, you know, from the outside, some sort of outside event that happens. But it's ultimately going to be something that happens, you know, in here, in here. You know, it's going to affect the the fundamental prism, the eyes through which we see and experience everything. And so, so what is our job now in these days leading up to Passover? Uh, is it to sit back? and just to wait for Hashem to sort of, you know, get on with the whole redemption thing? Or is it, uh, you know, should we be passive observers, you know, that are just waiting for redemption to play out? I really don't think so. I really don't think so, far from it, no way. Our job is arguably more important now than it's ever been. And I hope that by the end of this fellowship we'll come to a clarity on uh, why that is the case and what our job is. I really hope so. And if I don't come up with it, I certainly hope you will. Let's do this together. Let's build it together. I have these moments in life, moments of like darting moments of clarity, and then I lose it. You know, it's like walking through the forest and it's dark, pitch dark. You can't see anything. And then the flash of lightning and you see the house, the destination, then it's gone. You've got to work on that memory. Sometimes that's how I feel like the revelation of truth is in the world that I'm like experiencing that. But anyways, this past Shabbat was called Shabbat Hagadol, the Great Sabbath. And uh, one of the reasons that it's called the Great Sabbath is because this was the Sabbath before the Great Redemption. This was the Sabbath when the nation of Israel would, they would secure that sheep and they would tie it to their doorpost, the sheep, not to their doorpost, I'm sorry, to their bedpost. The sheep would, would be used as their Pesach offering. You know, the Egyptians not only, they not only saw that the Israelites were taking the sheep for this purpose, which, you know, as we know, the sheep was one of the deities of the Egyptians. It was one of the gods that their Egyptian taskmasters worshipped. So your, your taskmaster, your overlord's god, You imagine you'd be treating that with reverence. You wouldn't tie it to your bedpost to slaughter it a few days later. But they took it, you know, in full view. The Israelites tied these sheep to their bedposts, clearly setting it aside and telling the Egyptians that it would be a sacrifice to the God of Israel. You know, and to make the act even more bold, uh, the sages teach us that the Israelites didn't even know that the Egyptians were powerless to react. You know, they took that sheep in faith. I imagine they actually thought it could have been like a uh, an act of kamikaze suicide, uh, but it didn't matter. They took the sheep from a place of pure, simple faith in Hashem and of trust in Hashem's promises and in trust in, in Moshe, Hashem's servant, via aminu baHashem uva Moshe avdo. And they believed in, in in Hashem and in Moshe, his servant. The two came together. You know, it was the first time when the the Israelites took that sheep. It was really the first time, that they had an opportunity to step forward in faith, that they had agency, you know, that they had agency to act from a place of their own will. They weren't, they were no longer, you know, solely like an object that was being acted upon, but they had agency. And what was their first act of agency was taking that sheep, that act of faith. And ultimately, you know, I believe it's called the great Shabbat, Shabbat Hagadol, not only because it was great in, in our eyes, but even more so because it was great in the eyes of Hashem. Because at that moment, the nation had the opportunity to make the first move and prove their loyalty and their allegiance to Hashem, to God. Now, over the, over the years, I've, I've actually struggled with this, with the idea that in order to bring redemption, to hasten redemption, uh, we need to act first. We need to act first. I struggled with that idea, that we need to step forward in faith as an initiator. You know, it's, it's a famous verse, it's a famous passage we see again and again throughout the prophets, that our stepping forward and initiating a true, loving, and faithful relationship with Hashem, that is what Hashem is waiting for, and that's what Hashem is yearning for, and Hashem is going to wait until that happens, until He initiates the rest of the redemption. I sort of envision it like that story that I've shared with you so many times of one of my favorite characters in the Tanakh, Nachshon ben Aminadav, Nachshon, the son of Aminadav, a prince from the tribe of Judah. That until he went so far into the sea that there was no turning back, that he was about to drown, only then Hashem made the whole thing happen. Hashem made the whole thing happen, but he needed to go as far as he could. And that's really an example of what, what redemption What is holding back redemption, I think, even now? You know, we see this from the words of Zechariah, Zechariah, the prophet. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 3, it's really the first thing that he says in the whole book, and the first message that he delivers to the nation of Israel. He says, thus said the Lord of hosts, turn back to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will turn back to you, said the Lord of hosts. Hashem wants us to return to him, and he's just waiting, waiting. He's just waiting to return to us in response. But we need to take that initiative. And I, I never understood what that meant. How had to take that initiative. Like, okay, Hashem, I'm here. I'm, I'm doing it. What, what do I do? I just There were many times I would go and just talk, talk to God and try to take the initiative in the conversation. I couldn't figure out what exactly it meant. And that's why I think that this Shabbat is called Shabbat Hagadol, the great Shabbat, because this is the Shabbat where we took that step forward. In ultimate faith. That's what brought about this, the first redemption. And that is what I believe will bring about Bezrad Hashem, the final redemption. That you know me. Like I keep saying, okay, I don't know when it's going to happen anymore. I thought it was going to be during Corona. I thought it was going to be here. I feel it's so impending. So every day I wake up and feel this. You can ask Shayna. It drives her nuts. I'm just, I can't help it. I feel like we are on the cusp of it right now in a way that's. Do you guys feel that, to make me not feel alone here. Raise your hand if you feel like we're on the cusp of redemption. Okay, so we're all crazy together, or most of us at least. But anyways, we'll get to that soon. Um, but before we do, uh, you know, I don't know if uh, any of you have heard about this, but there was some uh, near recent archeological findings and they found Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses' smartphone. That's right, he had a smartphone and apparently there are some very powerful selfies taken on it. Check this out. Great. Was that was that good? I really like that. Someone uh, posted that, and I, I I downloaded. I made it into this little slideshow because there's always been something about that you know that theme that bringing into life. You know, every year Shana and I watched the 1950s Charlton Heston, the Ten Commandments. You know, it's actually pretty true to the story, not totally obviously, but much more than you would expect from Hollywood. And I, I watch these because there's something, I really feel like there's something to making it as real as possible. You know, elevating the, the words from black and white to visual, to audio, to seeing it, to identifying with it. And so I saw those videos. You know, it, it was, it was, those were actually created by artificial intelligence. Uh, that, you know, artificial intelligence app, like ChatGPT, but they have one for pictures. So someone described what they wanted the picture to look like, and that's how it came out. How crazy is that? I know that's relevant for some abstract spiritual reason that I don't know. But anyways, um, so that that was really special. But I'll, um, I'll tell you something else that you'll find even more special and more compelling. And that is the wisdom of our beloved Gimpels. Now, I'm not sure whether we have Jeremy with us. I don't think we do. He's really on a mission there in uh, the southern part of Africa. But Tehila uh, has reached out and said that she simply missed all of you too much and she wanted to send this message to you from South Africa. So here
0: we are with Tehila.
1: Hi, guys.
0: I hope everyone's doing well and enjoying getting ready for Passover. Jeremy and I are in beautiful South Africa with the children. We've had the privilege of teaching in the Jewish community in Johannesburg. Uh, Last Shabbat and in Cape Town this past Shabbat, we've also had the joy and pleasure of meeting uh, some fellowship members, which has been really a treat for us. Um, And so now, you know, I want to talk a little bit about the Exodus story as we're preparing for Pesach. I want to touch on an idea that we've talked about a little bit before, but I want to expand it. It's really been kind of sitting on my heart and and speaking to me as I'm preparing for Pesach. Um, there's this moment in the Exodus when we're standing at the sea that's really nothing short of stunning. You can imagine, you know, the sages teach us that the first time um, an idea or a story or a concept appear in the Torah, it's paradigmatic. It's to teach us about all future occurrences that are gonna be similar in the future. So this is the point when Israel is standing at the sea, it's the first time that as a nation, as free people, we are experiencing a challenge, a disaster, you know, something scary. And what is gonna be our response? And that's important to know. That's an important thing to know because you know that's going to guide us for all future times that as a nation, we're gonna be facing a challenge. So how do we approach that moment? Now, you can hear really two distinct voices in the nation when you get to the story of Israel standing at the sea with the Egyptians on one side and the water on the other side, This seeming disaster, like a, between a rock and a hard place, nowhere to go, not knowing what to do. And you hear these two voices. On the one hand, the Torah says, that the Jewish people began to dive in and pray and cry out to Hashem. On the other hand, you hear voices complaining. Jeremy always laughs. This is like the first Jewish humor. You can almost hear it in Jackie Mason's voice saying, "What? That we're in graves in Egypt? You had to bring us out here, Moses!" Right? Like this, this cynical voice saying, "Like, ugh, oh, if only we had just stayed in Egypt. This whole thing was a waste of time. Why did we even embark on this endeavor? It's just, you know, going to be doom and gloom." you have that voice at the same time and then at that moment when you hear these two competing voices then we hear Moshe and he comes out with this amazing leadership saying everybody you know don't worry and as you've seen the Egyptians today you're never going to see them again and you know Hashem will fight for you and you'll stand silent and this amazing inspirational speech But, you know, everyone's talking about Hashem. We don't actually hear Hashem just yet, right? We have some praying to Hashem and some saying, Hashem is not gonna save us. And Moshe is saying, Hashem is going to save us. And finally, we actually hear Hashem. Now, if I was writing the Torah, what would I imagine Hashem would say? I would imagine Hashem saying, good job guys, for praying so much. I've heard your prayers and I'm going to save you. But what does Hashem say at this like peak of the Exodus drama? We've gone to the sea and the Egyptians were waiting for a miracle. What does Hashem say? it's nothing short of stunning. Hashem says, why are you yelling to me? Why are you yelling to me? I mean, if you have these two voices, you have the prayers and the not prayers, wouldn't you expect Hashem to be like, good job prayers. But what does Hashem say? He says, what are you yelling to me about? Get up and go in the water. Get up and go. And it's really a surprising thing. You would think that there would be encouragement for those who had been praying, and instead, it sounds like Hashem is almost rebuking them for their prayers. So this strangeness was not uh, did not go unnoticed by our sages and the biblical interpreters. So first, we have Rashi. He says, "There's a time to pray and there's a time to do, and you need to know the difference." And he says that the Jews were, pra- the, were the, the people were praying to, much it was a quantitative problem too long praying like a lot of people have been to shul sometimes say wow that was a long davening here in south africa they daven until 11 on shabbat i said wow that was a long davening so rashi says it was a long praying you don't need that much praying when action is needed you need to take action you can pray a little bit don't pray too much um you know but then the ramban nachmanides says What do you mean when when you're in trouble, a Jew is supposed to pray. How can you say that they weren't supposed to be praying? They didn't know what to do. How could they know what to do? He says that it wasn't about the quantity of praying. It wasn't that they were praying too much. It's about the quality of the praying, the type of praying. He says, you know, there's, there's two different types of praying. You can pray where you're calling out to Hashem, Hashem, save me, save me, save me. But then there's another kind of prayer, which is the space in between the words. It's the listening part. And he says, they got lost in the yelling and the crying out. They were reading, you know, from the sitter, right? They didn't have a sitter, obviously, but, you know, I'm saying, uh, you know, as a kind of imagery, you can imagine people uh, calling out and dominating and dominating. And Hashem is saying, I'm trying to tell you what to do, but you have to actually stop and listen. So Nahmani says that there's, this element of prayer that sometimes we miss and it's not just calling out for Hashem to save us but actually to listen and hear what Hashem is guiding us to do. You have to pause in your prayer. There has to be a moment of silence in between the words where you're actually having a listening heart and trying to figure out what Hashem is guiding you to do in your life. Now when I first read these two explanations I thought that they were Contradictory, like you know, Rashi is saying, Don't pray too much, and Ramana is saying, Yes, pray, just pray properly. But then upon thinking about it more, I realize that these maybe are two complementary ideas because Rashi is saying, Don't pray so much, you've got to do something. But Raman is saying, How will you ever know what to do if your praying doesn't include this element of listening. It's something that we're not taught. We're often taught, you know, to read the liturgy and to say the prayers and the Ramada is not saying that's not important, but he's saying that it's equally important to actually listen. You know, the image that comes up for me is like when if anybody who has a teenage child, they know how hard it is for the parents to get a word in edgewise if you're trying to give them advice because they're talking and talking and talking and talking, but they don't want to actually listen. So the Ramadan is saying if you want to know what to do, you also have to listen and then you can follow Rashi and take an action-oriented approach. So this is something that we talked about uh, last year in the portion of Beshalach. But then this year, I was continuing to look into this, and I found another explanation by Sforno, by the Sforno. And the Sforno says something very interesting. He says, it's not about the quantity of the prayer that Hashem was talking about, nor was it about the quality of the type of prayer that they were praying. But rather, it was the content of the prayer. Hashem speaking to Moshe and saying, Moshe, stop calling out to me. The Sforno says Moshe was not calling out to Hashem for salvation. How do we know that? Because Hashem had already promised him the salvation. He knew the salvation was coming. The Sforno says that Moshe was crying out to Hashem with a different prayer than the rest of the nation. The nation was crying out for salvation. Moshe was crying out for something else. Moshe was crying out because he was afraid. He heard the other voice in Israel that was complaining and saying, we want to go back to Egypt. And he was afraid that they weren't going to follow him into the water when the sea would split, that they would be too scared, that they wouldn't have faith. So he was crying out to Hashem, what am I going to do? The nation of Israel, they, they lack faith. They're not going to follow me. And Hashem's rebuke of don't yell at, don't yell to me. Hashem's rebuke was to Moshe. And this forno says so beautiful, it says he was choshed Bikshirim. He was suspicious of kosher people. Moshe was suspicious that the Jewish people lacked faith because he heard all of their complaining. And Hashem is saying, don't cry out to me because you have to, as the leader of the Jewish people, it's not enough to just inspire them. You need to believe in them, that even when the words that they're saying are words of lacking faith, are words of not wanting to follow Hashem, not believing in Hashem, deep down, the people of Israel are good, and they are people of faith. And that, in the moment of, you know, when the when the when the rubber hits the road, and it's time to cross the sea, they're going to go with you. So stop calling out to me; just go, and you'll see that they'll follow. And I thought that was a really beautiful idea, and it spoke to me to what's happening in Israel now. You know, there's there's such a deep, um, you know, ideological crisis happening in Israel now about what our nation should look like and what our state should look like and what our judicial system should look like. And the rift runs so deep. And, you know, and so we can, I think that if you, you know, this is like an example of of that feeling of being at the sea, of being between a rock and a hard place where we're just in this kind of situation that we don't, we don't really know how to get out of. And we, we feel like there's, there's just, you know, there's just every, every angle that you take has some sort of leads to some sort of you know social crisis and within that feeling perhaps our sages are guiding us to the right kind of prayer posture to take yes we need to be active yes we need to be talking about this and doing what needs to be done but at the same time we have to have a listening heart you know like the ramban teaches us to know that we might not know all the answers and to hear hashem and to hear one another and to hear the other side's concerns as well and to always have you know this kind of a, a space between all of our yelling and talking where we're actually also listening but then maybe most importantly to take the approach of the sforno and in our prayer you know posture in the in the in the position that we take it and the feeling that is guiding us as we're praying for Israel to find its you know its best path forward is to keep in mind and remember not to, as the forno says, be suspicious of kosher people and to know that deep down with all of the arguments, the Jewish people are a good people and beyond the layers of doubt and beyond the layers of of lacking faith, there is this ultimate goodness that Hashem was rebuking Moshe for not seeing and then we always have to have our eyes open to see And to see and to believe that in the end, the Jewish people will choose a good and righteous path. They will follow Moshe into the water, as it were. They will turn Israel into a state that's guided by faith in Hashem. So with that, I wish everybody a beautiful and meaningful Pesach. And um, I hope you guys all have a great holiday. Bye, guys.
1: Thank you so much, (laughs) Tahila. Yeah, that really was beautiful. And that spoke to my heart because... Uh, it's it, it can be very challenging. You know, when I was with my father over Shabbat, I have this leftist uncle and he's like super duper old school Israeli. He's like 80 years old, super duper, duper leftist, super secular. The way he speaks about religious people with the seething hatred that he speaks about them. Often I'm like, hello, I'm right here. You're talking to me. But for some reason, he makes this distinction. And I got into a debate with him. Uh, you know, about the whole judicial reform thing. And the only reason I let it keep going, really, because I saw that it was bringing some life to my father's eyes and he was listening because the juices were flowing and he loves a good debate. And, and then my uncle, I thought I made an, a fabulous, fantastic, you know, tequila like point to him. And then uh, he just called me a horrible name and said I was totally ignorant, followed by a vulgarity. And so then I told him that he was a high priest in the cult of the le- secular leftists. And then there was like just negative emotions there. And then, um, you know, and then I said to him, I turned to him like, but I want you to know I still love you Says, I love you, too. And we hugged each other and we and I gave him a kiss on the cheek, knowing that he's not that type of guy that it would make him uncomfortable. So maybe I did that a little bit to get at him. But anyways, it's important. You know what Tehillah said. To rise above all of that and, and to have faith in each other and trust in each other, because ultimately, on some level, that's trust in Hashem. But, you know, going into this uh, last fellowship before Pesach that we're about to go into, I really hope I did it justice. I'm not sure, but we'll see. You know, there's so because there's so many themes for us to talk about. So many ideas. I was even considering doing a walkthrough of the Haggadah, you know, of the Haggadah, Haggadah experience. But I realized there probably wouldn't be enough time for that. There's so many different directions to take it into. And the more I reflected upon it, the more I thought that we should really zoom out, that we should look at the the macros. You know, it feels like, you know, it feels like on the one hand, history is coming to a conclusion. But on another, um, you know, it it feels like the world will soon be transitioning to something altogether new, a redemptive consciousness. And being that, uh, you know, we in this fellowship aspired to be that the tip of the spear, uh, you know, in, in bringing Hashem's light into the world, into the darkest places. I thought we should start talking about that. You know, what redemptive consciousness is. And Tabitha, if you, if you have time at the end, if I don't do it justice, which I, I'm sure that I won't, if we have time to, for a, you to share your thoughts about what redemptive consciousness is, how you're going to be going into this Passover, I would love to hear that too. And, uh, you know, uh, I'll say here that much of what I'm sharing now has been inspired by various of my beloved Rebbe's, uh, Rabbi David Aaron, Rabbi Nagan, and Rabbi Eli Melch Biederman. And sometimes it gets all mixed up that I don't know who's who. But if there's any decently insightful point I make, it's most likely not my own. OK, but anyways. You know, everyone who's uh, familiar with the Torah and the Jewish people knows that Passover is the penultimate holiday. You know, the foundation of Jewish thinking, of Jewish philosophy, of Jewish morality, really the the foundations of our relationship with Hashem. There's nothing more important than that. The foundation is built upon Passover. Every holiday is considered Zecher litziat Mitzrayim, a remembrance to the exodus from Egypt. As the Torah repeats again and again, it's all of them. They're all, in some way, Zecher litziat Mitzrayim. And, uh, you know, and it's not only the holidays. It's also every single Shabbat. And, and, you know, Shabbat is Zecher Letziah triumph. We say that during Kiddush. And not only is it uh, every single Shabbat, but every single day our prayers are filled with remembrances to the Exodus from Egypt because we actually have a divine directive to see ourselves as if we had personally left Egypt every single day. Okay, so now when it comes to faith, I think that most people um, who are real thinkers intuitively recognize whether they will admit it or not, that the universe has a creator, that this world that we live in is way too complex and just far too brilliantly designed to have been brought into being by a random haphazard set of events. So I don't think that for most people, that's the question we're really... Engaging with—that's what we're talking about. Definitely, no one in this fellowship. But I think that, or I don't think anyone in this fellowship. What do I know? I know nothing. But I think that part of the faith that most people struggle with is whether the Creator is still involved in the world that He created, and not only whether He's involved, but um, maybe He is involved. But is He—is He good? Is He good? Because if we're honest about it, these questions are not easily dismissed. You know, Hashem's mask of nature, the veil of coincidence and duality behind which Hashem hides himself is just too persuasive and too convincing to just dismiss these questions. There are just too many good things that happen to bad people and too many horrible things that happen to good people. And so this leaves us with two primary possibilities. One is that Hashem created the world and stepped away from it. Uh, leaving man to his, you know, his own evil and selfish, Machiavellian designs, and the other is that God is still here, but He simply isn't good, at least not in the way that we would understand good. I guess if all the spectrums of everything are defined by Hashem, then maybe not in the way that we understand good in this world that we live in. So Rabbi David Aaron, who I've learned from for many years, he quotes Albert Einstein, uh, who who said. God does not play dice with the universe, right? There was a creative intelligence and Einstein did not doubt it. His one question that remained unanswered, however, was if the universe was friendly. That's what he wanted to know. Is the universe friendly? And the holiday of Passover, in my experience, and what I'm going to try to you know, uh, set before you here, is that the holiday of Passover answers that question because it was through the unique revelations which Hashem shared with the nation of Israel and thereby the entire world, if we are his light unto the nations, if we are his uh, mevasrim, if we are those who carry his message to the world, right? The, the, The message that Hashem reveals on Passover is that not only did Hashem create the world, but he is still involved in every minute element that plays out in the universe. And not only is he orchestrating every single element and every moment, but he's experiencing those moments with us and through us for our own good. He's experiencing that because of his love for us. And uh, and here's the great Chiddush, right? The great, great Chiddush, the, the great most historic revelation that we learn on Pesach. Here we learn that not only does Hashem love us, not only does he love us, but his love for us is unconditional. Unconditional to a degree that the human mind really can't fathom, can't wrap itself around the unconditionality with which Hashem loves us. Now, fortunately, you know, we're not starting uh, this out as complete beginners because we've explored this subject in depth before. Um, but the first verse that's used to express this new dimension of relationship Hashem has with us, this new facet of the relationship he has with us. Or, or should I say the first verse to express the new revelation of Hashem's unconditional love for us is in the sixth chapter of Exodus, verses two and three. And Elohim, God spoke to Moshe and said, I am YHVH, the Tetragram. I am Hashem, the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as Shaddai, the Almighty, but my name yod heh vav my name Hashem, I did not make known to them. Okay, now again, clearly, if you're using the King James, or even the art scroll for that matter, it is not at all clear what's going on here. I mean, no matter what you're reading, that verse should spark some serious curiosity at the very least. It should inspire some questions because what in the world? Here's what it sounds like, okay? God said to Moshe, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as the Almighty, but my name, the Lord, I did not make known to them. So we have God, the Lord, the Almighty. Like, What is going on here? So anyone reading those verses closely in any language must recognize that there's got to be something that you're losing here in the translation because the whole verse is all about the names, the names of Hashem and that he represents himself. Now, okay, more in, in more in-depth explanations of, of each of these names. You'll have to go to numerous past sessions of the fellowship. You can reach out to Tabitha. She'll send you links that will take you to explanations. I don't want to take up the entire fellowship going through the different manifestations that each name represents, but on some level we can leave it at that. Right? That each name is a different revelation, a different perspective, a different encounter with Hashem's divine truth and unity. So Elohim is the expression of Hashem, which is the creator of natural borders and rules and boundaries and regulations. that This is Hashem's expression with the attribute of judgment. And although this is how he uh, he was known on a universal level until the Exodus, you know, I think it should have been clear. I don't know if, if you feel like this, but I feel like it should have been clear that there was more to him than that, because if that's all he was, the borders, the boundaries, the laws, then the world couldn't have existed even for a moment. Even one sin would ruin the whole balance of everything and render the world worthy of destruction. People had to know that there was more to God if for no other reason simply than biological deduction. But then again, maybe it's only clear to us in retrospect, and we know that now, but it wouldn't have been clear to us then. Either way, you know, Rabbi Aaron teaches YHVH, the Yud and the Hay and the Vav and the Hey. It's a name that we don't, I, I, I never know who even had a, present to you because we don't even say the name. We don't know how to pronounce it. It's a name that um, you know, transcends our, our in- intellect. We don't understand it. It's the tetragrammaton. It's the highest level name of Hashem, which conveys the highest truth. The revelation that Hashem is the compassionate sustainer, the compassionate sustainer of everything that there is, that he keeps us alive every moment causing our hearts to beat with every single pulse. He is the dynamic God that is existing at every moment. I don't, I don't even know how to explain it better than that. Uh, you know, I remember during a debate about the existence of God that I had with a, a dear friend. He's a, he's a brilliant guy, uh, older guy. He said, you know, I asked him, what is it that keeps the body at 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit? What keeps the body at 37 degrees Celsius? What animates us? What vitalizes this walking clump of dirt that is us? Right? It's a good question. And I remember being so shocked, because he's a well-thought-out guy. He philosophizes. We've been going for hours. I remember that I was so shocked when he said that he never even thought of that question. I mean, how can you have never thought of that question? I walk around and think about that question most days of my life. I mean, truth is, like, who am I to judge? I'm sure there are thousands of obvious questions that I've never thought of, but still what in the world is it that is keeping us going we never once plug into a socket we're not a tesla where does that life force energy come from and i think the answer to that lies in the name of hashem ultimately that sacred four-letter name conveys that we are children to hashem you know as a as a father to children he brought us into existence but unlike a human father we remain constantly connected to him at every single of moment of everything. Our entire existence depends upon him for every moment of our life, every day. Okay, so as we see in chapter 14, verse 1 of Deuteronomy, right? It just it strengthens what I'm saying here. You are the children of the Lord your God. Banim Atem La Hashem. Banim Atem Hashem, the Lord your God. That's the name that's used, Yud and Hey and Vav and He. When we are considered God's children, it is only that tetragrammaton, four-letter, Yud and Hey Vav and he name that is used because that is the manifestation of him being our father and we are his children, literally. And while probably the greatest, you know, I, I guess the greatest prototype of unconditional love in, in our world, in our existence, is that from a parent to a child the love Hashem has for us is infinitely more unconditional than the love of a mortal flesh and blood parent has for their child. The great Rav Meir actually, uh, you know, he, he refers to the words of the prophets, which express, uh, you know, how deep Hashem's love is for us as his children. And not only the depth of his love, but the unconditionality of his love. So here are the verses uh, from the Talmud. It's not a, it's from the Talmud, but quoting the prophets. <laughs> Did not the prophet Jeremiah call them foolish children? Foolish, yet children. Did not Moses call them faithless children? Faithless, yet children. So too the prophet Isaiah referred to them as descendants of evildoers, children that deal corruptly. But nonetheless, children. Even if they leave God completely and turn to idolatry, the prophet Hoshea said, that they are still destined to be called children of the living God. You know, I don't think we need the words of the prophets or even the the Talmud for this. Just reading through the Bible and seeing all the great highlights of every infraction and sin and rebellion that we have uh, perpetrated against Hashem, and still He loves us. You know, the Bible itself, this book right here, this is a living proof of that unconditionality of Hashem's love. You know, I can tell you that in in my own life, and I'm not gonna get into the details, but I often see the leading up to Pesach, up to Passover, I fall on my face. You know, I I work so hard in life, like all of you do, to stay close to Hashem. Maybe I don't work as hard as all of you, but I I really think it's it's what I'm about. It's of the utmost importance to me in my life. I have no greater desire or aspiration for Hashem than, than for Hashem to use me as his servant to bring his light into the world. I don't need to be a millionaire. I don't need to be a millionaire, a billionaire. I don't need to have money. I just want Hashem to use me. <laughs> what did King David say? <laughs> I have one request from Hashem, that I sit in his house every day of my life, that I live a care, that I visit his, his holy sanctuary. That's all I want. Yet regardless, one way or another, It's just such a crazy thing leading up to Pesach. I really tend to fall on my face and and I'm not I'm not being hard on myself unnecessarily. I'm just being true. I keep a journal. I know it. And even without a journal, I remember it's that dramatic. It happens nearly every year, if not every single year. You know, it's one of those patterns that you just don't miss. I continuously fall on my face leading up to Passover. And in light of what we just learned together, in light of the the teachings that, that I've been going through, approaching this Passover, I think that I may have gotten to the reason, that 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 may be the reason, that perhaps in my own warped head, even though I claim it's not the case, but on a, a deeper level, I start feeling that, you know, that I'm really rocking it. That on my own level, of course, I'm doing such a good job that I face impulses for sin. That time I wanted to do that, that time I wanted to, and I overcome them. One after another, I'm overcoming them. And because of that, Hashem is blessing me abundantly. I mean, I live in the hills of Judea on on this beautiful, breathtaking biblical farm, which fulfills more prophecies than I even know. You know, I'm I'm, I'm being used in such a way. Um, I'm healthy. My wife and children are healthy. I'm able to put food on the table and some gas in the car. You know, it must be that to, to some degree that the divine Excel sheet that I have in my head even if I claim I don't, it's there. Then some way it's balancing out. That you know, there there are moments that after so much service of Hashem, that I have a fleeting moment that maybe this is a quid pro quo that I must be worthy of at least some of the kindness and the blessings and the abundance that He's showering upon me. Not, I don't think I'm ever, and I don't think I ever feel worthy of all of it. It's too overwhelming for me to feel worthy of all of it. But some of it, maybe, I'm like, okay, yeah. You know, I take a lot of groups around. I don't, I don't take money from these yeshivas and seminaries. I get my heart and my soul drenched in sweat. I have nothing to show for it other than a soul filled with meaning and purpose. I, I'm worthy in some way. And then, you know, leading up to fat Passover, I, I fell on my face. I fall on my face. And I think the reason is, is that the recognition that Hashem's love for for us it is absolutely unconditional and realizing that unconditionality of Hashem's love is so critical that I need to be reminded of it. I, I need to feel like I just am not worthy of anything and then, wow, look at the blessing. I need to be reminded of it, not just you know intellectually in my head, but experientially because I really think that without that knowledge and recognition of Hashem loving us unconditionally, not only is our relationship with Hashem incomplete but perhaps the argument could even be made that we are worshiping a different god altogether i know that sounds extreme and i really may be wrong and i have not heard that from anyone else so take it with a grain of salt because it's it's just from my heart but it feels that way that's that's what i that we it feels like on some level if we don't really accept that hashem loves us unconditionally then maybe we're not really serving the hashem the god of israel you know, it's, it's like we're serving a different God altogether. Why? So, you, you know, our sages teach us that the nation of Israel was on the 49th level of spiritual impurity and unholiness when we were redeemed from Egypt. That's 49 out of 50, right? Not only weren't we worthy of redemption, but we were on the cusp of spiritual annihilation altogether. Yet, from that lowest place, they experienced the greatest redemption that anyone has ever experienced in world history so far. The sages say that the final redemption will be far greater than that one. I can't even imagine. So, so so why do I say that? Why is this unconditionality of Hashem's love, which by the way, you know, I still struggle with in the form of this divine Excel sheet that I was talking about, you know, with the deposits and the withdrawals and the whole thing. Why is the unconditionally of Hashem's love so critical that I would go so far as to say that we're not actually in a relationship with Hashem in the highest, truest form of who Hashem is, but we're serving a different God altogether? And I think the answer, the reason I say that, and by the way, maybe I'm overstating this, but I don't think so. I'll try to be more confident in what I'm saying. The reason I'm saying that is because it's the lack of this belief in Hashem loving us unconditionally. That leads to idolatry, and by the way, thinking about it like this makes me even more sympathetic to the psychology, uh, to the uh, psychology of idolatry, because it's just so hard for flesh and blood like us to realize and, and and to feel worthy of being loved at all, particularly loved unconditionally. Maybe you're better at that. You know, I know there's a lot of Jews in this group, a lot of Christians, and a lot of Christians talk about this. Maybe there's something about you know, about it that, that makes it easier for you to come to the terms with that unconditionality of things. But it's, it's, it's that difficulty in being the recipient of God's unconditional love, I believe that leads us to create these gods in our own image. Gods that we can more understand and identify with, that are more like us. Gods whose love is more like our love, which is, you know, let's face it, Conditional. And, and because our love is, is so conditional, it's hard for us to put ourselves aside enough to even fathom that Hashem's love for us is truly unconditional. Because as we know, the root of all idolatry originally was der- derived from our relationship with Hashem, but as the Egyptians and the Canaanites and the Jebusites, they couldn't imagine that the singular one God of the universe actually loves them and cares about them, particularly considering, you know, the very famous and sinful nature that they had, that they had to turn to these intermediate powers like the stars or the moon or the sun or the animals, because with these forces, with these forces, they could strike a deal, right? They could offer their sacrifices, offer their children as sacrifices, cut their own flesh, shave their own heads, whatever they would, they would offer their sacrifices, what that meant to them, and by doing so, a deposit had been made in the divine Excel sheet, and now Thor or whatever it is, you know, Baal Peor, or, uh, you know, the, now their crops would be blessed and their cities would be protected and their wives would be fertile, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Does that make sense? Why, why we would need that? The revelation, you know, of Hashem's unconditional love on Pesach shows us that this type of thinking is, is idolatrous, and the psychology behind it is just plain false. And so in, in light of this truth about Hashem's love, Rabbi Aaron brought a verse that makes sense to me now, now that I'm reading it in this context, in a whole new way. So let's go to Exodus chapter 34. You shall not make molten gods for yourselves. Next verse. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. It's like that. Those are not two different verses taken from different places. Those are in order. Exodus 34 verses 17 and then 18. You know, not to make an idol really seems like a disjointed non sequitur to keeping the holiday of Pesach. You shall not make idols for yourselves. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. Why are those side by side? Why are they side by side? What is the directive against idolatry immediately precede matzot? Why does that make any sense? And I think the answer is because internalizing Hashem's unconditional love for us is the only salvation from what would be inevitably idolatry. Otherwise, the cosmic Excel sheets, the give and the take of idolatry is the only logical, almost inevitable conclusion. And if we really internalize this truth, if we really meditate upon it, that Hashem really, truly loves us unconditionally, we would most likely burst out into tears. We would, if I mean, really let it pierce into our souls. It's just so beautiful. But still, still some people resist it. You know, it makes some people uncomfortable to even teach this idea because, you know, teaching this idea scares people into thinking that, you know, they're afraid that that those who learn it will abuse this knowledge and say, what would they say, right? Hey, Hey, God loves me anyways. I'll do what I want, and he'll just forgive me. Um, what do Christians? There's a thing in Christianity about this type of thinking. You know. Uh, anyways, uh, I don't see that danger so much when it comes to Torah Judaism. That really learning and internalizing God's unconditional love for us would would cause that type of thinking. I don't see it because that's not a real relationship. Someone who would think that way is going to think in other perverse and distorted ways that would lead them far from Hashem For me, when I'm you know living in that place of recognizing and even receiving Hashem's unconditional love because I have moments there, you know it doesn't make me want to sin at all at all. you know on the contrary, it fills me with the desire to serve him with all of my heart, to stay close to him, to cleave to him. Not because I'm afraid of what will happen if I don't, because, you know, I've mentioned this before, the world to come, reward and punishment, that whole stuff, it it doesn't motivate me at all. I don't know any of uh, my friends that are serving Hashem and seeking to be servants of Hashem that it motivates at all to think about it in any way. As a matter of fact, I can't recall a time in all of my learning that we even talk about the afterlife because it just doesn't play a role and it, it really shouldn't play a role. The knowledge of Hashem's unconditional love, you know, it, it, uh, it liberates us from the Excel file of deposits and withdrawals and brings us into a relationship that's built on love and gratitude and away from a relationship that's built on fear and this weird sort of divine bribery type thing. And that is why Passover is called the holiday of Matzot. Rabbi Aaron actually shares this interesting paradox uh, that matzah, you know, represents two opposite elements at the very same time. It represents, you know, this, like, what does it taste like, right? This cardboard-like tasteless bread that you would feed to a slave. But at the same time, it also represents our liberation from Egypt, right? That we, we didn't even have time for the bread to rise. We were leaving Egypt with such haste that bread that sustained us as we left Egypt in, in such in such speed that it didn't even have beyond 18 minutes to rise. So this all leads to the question, how can it be that both the bread of pain and affliction, and at the same time, matzah is the bread of liberation and freedom? And the answer he teaches is at the core, matzah is what the sages said in ancient Aramaic, is lechem de, de mehemnuta, the, the lechem of emunah, the bread of faith then matzah transcends both the affliction and the liberation encompassing both of them because in truth and really i encourage you going into pesach if you have the time and the desire to go to our podcast feed and listen tabitha will send them to you the last passover pre-passover fellowships i think especially the first one because you know we've talked about this before but in truth you know the affliction and the freedom are two sides of the same coin and they can't even exist without each other. The matzah teaches us that um, no matter how unsavable we may feel, that no matter how lost or even, you know, let's say um, surrendered we may be to, uh, to our fears or our obsessions or our compulsions or our addictions or just to ways of thinking that are so neurally wired we don't think that there's a way out of it, you know. My father, you know, he he's a, he's an older man. When you get to way up there, your neural pathways are really set in such a way. But the affliction that I see him going through, you know, here's here's the idea: when we feel truly enslaved to these compulsions to the degree that we may not even be able to imagine a way out of it. Matzah comes into the picture and teaches us that if God wills it, when God wills it, in the blink of an eye, Hashem can save us. And uh, and we can see, we will see at that moment, how the bread of affliction is indeed the bread of freedom and liberation. Hashem can give us the eyes to see that within the affliction is the liberation. So of Aaron uh, brought the teaching of Rabbi Nachman. You know, Rebbe Nachman, he st- who states it so beautifully, he says, being far from God itself is for the purpose of coming close. The downfall can be transformed into a great ascent. I actually think the Hebrew says the downfall will be transformed into a great ascent. You know, and I see this truth revealing itself, like I said, in my life, because these have been difficult times and difficult days. And when I zoom in day in and day out, my dad is just suffering horribly, horribly. He's in excruciating pain. My father, who is the pillar of strength for my whole family, who I don't think I ever saw cry growing up unless it was crying from laughter. He now is crying into my, ne- my, my neck and he's not letting go. You know, the, the, the pain, the affliction he's going through is so great. But when I zoom out, I see something that is happening to him. It's happening not only to him, to all of us, we're all going through this, but the the suffering can be so overwhelming that you know, while we're in it, we see colors, our head is spinning, we don't see what Hashem is doing in our hearts. Just yesterday on Shabbat lunch, my father was looking around the table and he saw his brother who flew in from Austin, Texas, our cousins who uh, drove down from Tel Aviv, Uh, me, I was there, my mother was there, good friends from Houston, and he looked around the table, and, you know, sometimes he's just so out of it. It just looked like he's vacant. He's not home. But at that moment, just this life rushed into his eyes and he started crying, sobbing. You know, he, he looked at, at all of us and in his raspy voice, you know, he, he fought through the tears and he just said, I'm just so blessed. I'm so blessed to have all of you in my life loving me so much. And then the real sobbing began when he said, and there are just so many people who have no one. They're all alone. They're all alone in the world. They have no one. Now, that is not the father that I grew up with. You know, he may have felt bad for people at times, but it was not him to weep out of compassion for them, out of the question. You know, God is doing something to his heart, and uh, I'm there with him, and I'm holding his hand, and I'm experiencing with him, and I want his pain to be relieved, I pray for it constantly all day every day but what Hashem is doing in his heart is a beautiful thing you know his, his excruciating pain in ways that I don't understand is, is is freeing him from the callousness around his heart you know the calluses we all have these calluses around our hearts I, I think at least I do these calluses that prevent us from from really feeling and that really feeling you know those tears that. That is real life. That is freedom. That is experiencing real life. You know, on the one hand, those calluses that we've built around our hearts, they may indeed, they do, they protect us to some degree from the pain, which they were, that was what they were designed to do. But uh, they also imprison us in the type of bondage of our own making, which prevents us from experiencing the richness and the beauty of life. And the pain my dad is going through, I see that that he he's having you know this heart of flesh of more sensitive flesh than I've ever seen before that is being put into his heart, and so uh, you know we started this fellowship by asking ourselves, so what is the redemption mindset? You know how can we harness it? So let's remember for a moment a truth that I've touched up, touched upon in the past fellowships, and that's the idea that. You know, the, this, this unique relationship that the nation of Israel has with the calendar and the unique relationship we have with time itself. I don't think it's just us, but I think we're the only nation that's really conscious and aware of it, which we can only thank Hashem himself for that. Because from the Western perspective, right, we've spoken about this before, time progresses linearly. Uh, yet from the Torah perspective, time ascends like a helix, you know, like like a helix of repeating patterns and cycles, which are illuminated by the biblical roots at the foundational level of the spiral of time. You know, meaning that on the 15th of Nisan, it's not a time of redemption because that's when Passover happened and we're commemorating that and we're memorializing that. But Passover took place on the 15th of Nisan because it was then that the energy and power of of quantum redemption is available to be harnessed since the beginning of time. And so while the truth of Hashem is love for us, while that's always true, and we always have the power to redeem light from darkness, Pesach is a time in which we can tap into that redemptive energy in ways that we cannot even possibly imagine with our rational intellectual minds. So going in, let's prepare. Let's prepare, and I think there are a lot of ways for us to prepare. Prayer—that's a main way to prepare. Going in and internalizing that whatever our seder looks like, that we're going to have serenity and happiness, knowing that Hashem is in charge of that, and that's how He wants it to look. Let's prepare. You know, let's let's think ahead, and look at the at the affliction of our lives, and recognize on whatever level we can that the pain that we're experiencing is from our Abba. You know, our king, our God, you know, Hashem, who just loves us unconditionally. And therefore, whether we can understand it or not, that pain, that affliction is the key to our redemption. And by internalizing that truth into our hearts, by living that truth, by thanking Hashem for that which causes us the greatest affliction and suffering, which is not an easy ask. But by thanking Hashem for our pain, even while we are still being afflicted by it only while we're still being afflicted by it. That is the opportunity for redemptive mindset. And that's what we can do to hasten redemption. You know, we learned in the book of Zechariah, we went through this before, turn back to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will turn back to you. Right? Turn back to me and I will turn back to you. How can we make that first move? How can we turn to Hashem in the truest way? And the answer is by piercing through the, the affliction and the slavery and the subjugation that uh, you know that, that we're feeling in such a real, visceral way by piercing through it with eyes of faith, and by rejoicing in our pain even while we are still in the thick of the suffering, and by acting accordingly, you know we can embody the redemption mindset by experiencing the redemption that we can barely imagine possible. I can't think tell you how many times I've been in a spot in life that I see no possible way out. And even though we can't imagine it or understand it, we act in a way that is a reflection of the truth that redemption is at hand. You know, by by tying the sheep of our taskmasters to our bedposts, metaphorically, whatever that sheep is, whoever our taskmasters are, by tying that sheep to our bedposts in ultimate faith while still experiencing the searing pain of the iron crucible of the Egyptian empire. That is what we can do to hasten redemption. Okay. Now I'm going to share with you my favorite reading of Psalm 118. And you guys, we love each other by now. You got to forgive me. I need to share it with you again, because it's just too beautiful not to. You know, Rav Biederman with the slight shift of a comma, he transformed what's always been one of my favorite Psalms to still being one of my favorite Psalms, just in a different way. So the fifth verse in the psalm is traditionally read Tabitha. Keep it up here. From the narrow straits, I call out to you, Hashem. And Hashem answered me from a place of expansiveness. That's how it's read. But how does Rav reframe it? You could probably say it with me by now. I just say this to myself so regularly, not only on Pesach, but on Pesach, that's what it's all about. Because Meitzar, Min HaMeitzar from the narrow straits, that's Mitzrayim. Meitzar is Mitzrayim. It's talking about Egypt. So how does Rav say to read it? He says to read it, Min HaMeitzar Karate Ya, from the narrow straits I call out to you Hashem, Aneni. And Hashem answered me, Bamerchav Ya, you are in a place of redemption. You aren't in narrow straits at all. It's an illusion you're already in a place of abundance. So internalizing that truth is the redemptive mindset. And we don't actually see it. Don't don't be, beat yourself up that you don't see it, though well, I'm in a place of, of expansive abundance. I don't see that at all. We, we don't see it until Hashem decides that our time for redemption has come. But we can still live, even if we don't understand it, we can still live that truth. And that's it. I'm going to say it again. Inter- internalizing the truth that Hashem loves us unconditionally as a father loves his children, but even more so, even more, far more so than we can ever imagine. That's just a, a parable. That's just a comparison. That is the redemption mindset. Realizing that while Hashem may appear to us as Elohim, he's our Abba. You know, I want, I want to just share this last, so, you know, from, from Dvash's perspective, There are times that I am like Elohim to Dvash. You know, she'll run out into the street and I'm going to give her tushy a little potch and she'll cry. And at that moment, she will experience me as Elohim. You know, she experiences the rules, the regulations, and she could even experience that as cruelty at her age. And it's true. You know, Elohim is a facet of my uh, essence, my relationship towards Dvash at that moment. It's true that due to my love for her, I have created these rules and laws that she shouldn't transgress, you know, at the pain of punishment. But but I'm doing them for her own good. We, We know that it's for her own good. But we know the truth also, that all of those manifestations of me being Elohim in Vash's eyes, that is just a lower level expression of my love for her. That's why the rules exist. They're created for her own good and for her own protection and for her own safety. But wait, here it comes. Here it comes. Dvash may may do something so horrible, not at the age of three, but at some time, God forbid, that she is deserving of a very severe punishment. Maybe even deserving to be sent away or something even harsher. God forbid, but it could happen. And she did violate the rules that she knew very well. But, but I am her Abba so I can pass over those rules that I myself instituted. I can, I can, Only I can break the rules that I myself instituted. And that's what it is, that Hashem is our Abba. That is what Passover is about. That Hashem is able to, due to his unconditional love for us, that's why he himself went to execute the firstborn. Because according to the letter of the law, according to Elohim, we all deserved it. We all deserve death, but Hashem himself went down to execute that final uh, plague because he was passing over, Hashem in his love for us, he passed over our sins. He loves us so much. And so, my friends, I want to bless all of you. I want to bless all of us that we should have the courage and the vision and the faith to take that first step towards Hashem. And I bless us that we're able to return to him. And by the the potency and the intensity of the faith with which we return to him, that he returns to us. Not only as individuals, but as, as Israel, as all of mankind. And I bless us that by returning to Hashem with that courage and that love, that Hashem will pass over all of our homes as he did the Israelites when that great day of judgment comes. Because while I don't know much, one thing I do believe is that that great day of judgment, as I said at the beginning of this fellowship, that final redemption is coming soon. And so I want to uh, wind down this fellowship as we're headed into Passover with the blessing of Aaron the high priest, which as you know, I'm not a descendant of Aaron, but the Torah does tell us that we're a nation of priests and that we're tasked, and honored with the privilege of blessing. And blessing all of you are such a blessing to us. And so having said that with your permission, I would like to bless you with the Aaronic blessing. Adonai Adonai hanav elecha Yissa Adonai panav elecha, shalom. May Hashem bless and protect you. May He shine His light and His countenance upon you, and may He give you peace. Amen. Love you all so much. To join the Land of Israel Fellowship, to attend our live interactive Zoom sessions, to participate in the Fellowship Connection Q&A events, or even just to binge on past sessions, click on the link below or go to thelandofisrael.com backslash fellowship and join our family of hundreds of people from around the world broadcasting light from the land of Israel live from the Judean frontier.